In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. All right, folks, we are back. Meditations and Molotovs, I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time at prn.fm. All right, so today, the Iraq War, 14 years later, I mean, you want to talk about feeling old. This is maybe one of the first times that I felt old. <laughs> I'm starting to feel starting to feel more and more old as uh, I go to these uh, local political events and travel around and attend these different actions and so on. Everyone looks so damn young. Maybe I'm just aging poorly because of the drugs and alcohol and the war and all that. That aside... I do think, you know, 14 years, my God, um, it's amazing. You know, 14 years ago today, I was at Camp Margarita. And people were freaking out, waiting for the initial invasion. We're waiting to go over the... Everyone who was in charge at the time uh, was extremely nervous. I mean, everybody was nervous, obviously. You're going to war. But what I remember vividly is the sort of, in hindsight, of course, absurd statements that our command was saying to us and making, like half of you aren't going to make it. You know, so our command is sitting there lieutenants and staff sergeants and gunnery sergeants who are saying, Marines, half of you are not coming back from this war. Saddam's got major ma- uh, weapons of mass destruction. He's got chemical weapons, and they've got the fourth or fifth, I forget what they used to say, the fourth or fifth largest army in the world. <laughs> oh, my God. In hindsight, of course, it was a, it was a complete joke. I mean, my God. You know, you're, it was the most powerful, the richest and most powerful military in the history of the planet invading a peasant country, a largely peasant country. That's what it was then. That's what it was in Afghanistan. That's what it was in Vietnam. That's what it is in Syria. That's what it is in Libya. So the liberals and the media and the government and their corporate uh, masters can try and muddle and muddy the situation as much as they can. They can try and make these issues much more complex than they are. In some ways, they're extremely complex, but not in the ways that the media tries to portray to people. So the media will say, oh, well, for instance, when the war was clearly a disaster— 
not it was always a disaster for the people of Iraq, but when the war was becoming a disaster for the Bush administration and for the United States, I would mark this around 2005, right before the Democrats swept in in 2006 and took the House and the Senate, and right around the time that the Iraqi insurgency was at its most effective. So when that happened, the story changed for the United States, and people started to focus more, largely more on the plight of the Iraqi people, largely due to groups like Iraq Veterans Against the War, Veterans for Peace, and Code Pink, among the many other anti-war organizations and coalitions that existed. You know, thank God for those groups. Over the years, I've had a love and hate relationship with the anti-war movement. I initially loved it. And then I hated it. <laughs> or at least loathed it. And now, years later, I sort of look fondly back on those times in many ways. It was nice to have people who cared about one of the most important issues of our time. Empire, militarism, violence, war. Today, well, today you'd be hard-pressed to find any group in any city that is doing serious organizing work around uh, U.S. empire, U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism, U.S. foreign policy. They don't exist. I think there's a many reasons for that, and those are reasons we've gone over in previous shows. Those are things I've written about in the past. But it is truly heartbreaking that such a movement doesn't exist today and that the movement um, dried up almost overnight when Barack Obama was elected and, to be fair, when the economy collapsed also due to the war, something that's not usually brought up in the same breath. But the story changed, and people who were once involved either got involved with other groups or they went home. I know a lot of people who went home. There's a myth that everyone went home. That's not true. A lot of people remained engaged with various movements. They just didn't really have a base or a foundation or the support network necessary to continue anti-war work. Groups like Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace and Code Pink, they continued to do work, but it was very minimal. So the deterioration of those organizations, the, the sort of falling apart of a group like IVAW, and it, we have to talk about this history because it's a history that won't be talked about otherwise, but people forget, I mean, IVAW had, we had, I think over 50 chapters in 48 states. We had like, no, it was something like 55 or 60 chapters at its height. Now, some of those chapters, it is true. Some of those chapters had like a half a dozen people. But many of those chapters were actually quite active and quite robust and, vi and vibrant. And they were doing really interesting work. Everywhere from Europe, we had chapters on active duty bases in Germany. We had chapters on active duty bases in the United States, everywhere from New York and Fort Drum to Fort Hood in Texas. 
dozens of chapters throughout the United States, all conducting different actions, some direct actions, some civil disobedience, some street theater, some a mixture of all the above. Speaking tours around the country, universities, city halls, libraries, high schools, union halls, museums, art institutes. I've, I, I think I've spoken in almost any, any and every venue you can imagine because of those days and the years that followed. But we have to, you know, we have, those of us who are involved with that have to continue to talk about that. But I think we should, I think we should avoid taking an overly dichotomous approach. So people often will look back on those times and they'll say, Vince, that was a waste of time. That was, what did we really accomplish? I think that's a very limited and simplistic view. And I also sort of dislike when people look back on those times and they only want to talk about how wonderful it was. Again, I, I look back quite fondly on those years, especially in today's context and the lack of a any sort of anti-war movement in the United States, which really says a lot about not just where we are as a society, but where the left is or the so-called left or the, whatever progressivism is today. But that lack of anti-war movement in today's world was really symbolized and embodied by someone like Bernie Sanders, who maybe talked about U.S. foreign policy less than 5% of the time that he was involved or uh, with the primary campaigns and so on. You know, it wasn't something that he talked about. It wasn't a big part of his platform. wasn't a big part of what people like Tom Hartman and other uh, progressives in the United States uh, focus their energy on. U.S. foreign policy is the elephant in the room, remains the elephant in the room. We see this today where Trump wants to divert $56 billion to an already, I mean, insane, absolutely insane and unacceptable defense budget. And he wants to put pump another $56 billion into it and take away from educational programs and arts and humanities programs and public media and so on. There's no movement to stop him from doing those things. And there is absolutely no movement to stop him from, say, launching an attack in North Korea or launching an attack in Iran or the ongoing military operations that are taking place across the continent of Africa and across the Middle East. So as Jeffrey St. Clair pointed out in his recent article, you know, Mr. Anti-War, Mr. I was against the Iraq war from the start, President uh, Trump has now sent 2,500 troops to Kuwait to await deployment to either Iraq or Syria. And of course, the largest, or I'm sorry, the longest war in American history, the war in Afghanistan, continues. And it continued throughout the Obama administration with not a peep from the liberals or the so-called progressives. That has to change, folks. I don't give a shit if I am one of the last voices in this despicable culture and society and country who will continue to bring that up as a major point. Uh, there's very few of us. And that's not to pat myself on the back. That's actually, it makes me want to uh, 
scream and at sometimes cry uh, because there are there is no no one talks about what we're doing to people abroad. And if you think what we've done to indigenous people here or black people here or people of color or immigrants is bad, huh, <laughs> you've seen nothing yet. And you've, you, you have no idea how brutal and insane the United States can get. So this isn't a race to the bottom, just to be clear. I'm not playing that game. But the sort of outrage that I see from people, and of course, rightly so, justified outrage, that level of outrage, uh, say, directed at police for the pol police violence and, and the police state, justified, rightly so, all the above, the, the anger directed at Trump for his xenophobia and bigotry, of course, justified, rightly so, is a sliver of the sort of anger and resentment that many of us, including hundreds of millions across the world, feel toward U.S. empire for the things that U.S. empire has done uh, to our friends, both overseas and our friends who were in the military with us. And yes, many of whom ignorant, brainwashed, incapable of critical thought. And, you know, let's be very honest. The reason that 22 veterans are killing themselves every day and have been for the last, I don't know, eight years now. I don't know, maybe it's nine or 10 years. I'm, I'm sorry if those numbers are wrong. I know it's 22 a day. I know it's been far more than died in Iraq and Afghanistan during combat operations, died from you know, killing themselves. Veterans are overdosing and cutting their wrists and blowing their brains out because they feel bad about what it is they participated in. It's not, and I've tried to explain this to folks over the years, and I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around this. It is the gore. The, go the gore of war is terrible. You don't want to see your friend's arm blown off. It's not fun to see people's heads chopped off. It's not fun to see uh, little girls and babies blown up and charred and their bodies charred and to smell what the, the smell of that skin smells like. Now, none of that is fun. None of that is uh, something to uh, you know, dismiss. But the real... PTSD, the real trauma, the real anger, the resentment, the depression, all of that comes from the fact that we saw those things, but not in the context of a situation where we felt that it was justified. We saw those things in a context filled with lies, filled with unjust realities, filled with illegalities filled with atrocities and brutalities and horrors, some of those things inherent to war, but some of those things more specific to the sort of counterinsurgency modern warfare that uh, took place in Iraq, and that is taking place in Iraq and Afghanistan and took place in Vietnam and the French in Algeria and the British in Malaysia, and we can go on and on and on. But that's actually why the veterans are blowing their heads off. They're not killing themselves because it, 
it is terrible to watch your friends die. It is terrible to take someone's life. All of the, all of the above, all things I've talked about for many, many years now. But to be very clear on this anniversary today, 14 years after the war in Iraq started and still hasn't ended, veterans are killing themselves because they feel bad about what it is they participated in. Remember, especially my liberal friends, my Democrat friends, Donald Trump was against the war in Iraq, nominally against and vocally against the war in Iraq during the primaries. That combined with his populist message was the clear, and yes, his sort of overt bigotry and xenophobia, though there are plenty of Republicans who espouse similar thoughts. The biggest distinction between Trump and his primary opponents was his stance on the war in Iraq and his faux populism. Those were the elements that distinguished Trump from his competition. Liberals and progressives would have been wise to pay attention to that, but they didn't. I remember asking a lot of my friends throughout the primary process, are you watching Trump's speeches? Oh, no, Vince, I don't know how you could do that. How could you torture yourself? Oh, he's such an idiot. Listen to the speeches. And if you don't listen to the speeches, and yes, there's tons of insane and goofy bullshit wrapped up in his speeches. Go back to YouTube and watch and listen to what he was saying about U.S. foreign policy during the primaries. Go back and watch the debates and forget all of the snide, goofy comments that he made to people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and pay attention to what he was saying about the war in Iraq. He was speaking directly to a segment of society who knows the war in Iraq was not only based on lies and all their above, but that it was essentially a war for geopolitical power, for oil companies, for contractors like Halliburton, for private mercenary groups like Blackwater and Triple Canopy. Those of us who participated in that war, especially in the post-social media, post-Netflix, post-YouTube world, where it takes two clicks to find a documentary that anyone could watch for 60 to 90 minutes, essentially explaining how the war in Iraq was based on lies, either intentional or unintentional, but nonetheless based on lies, and following a path and a continuity in U.S. foreign policy where the United States routinely breaks international law with no consequences, where the United States constantly makes U.S. foreign policy decisions not based in any sense of morality or ethics, but based in the world of power politics. At least here I can respect someone like Henry Kissinger. I respect Kissinger more than I respect the Bernie Sanders and the Barack Obamas of the world when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. At least Kissinger understands that the world is made up of power. That institution, either you have power or you don't have power. And if you have power, you exert it. 
these humanitarian interventionists like Samantha Powers and Barack Obama and to a lesser degree, but still Bernie Sanders. These are the most cynical, the Hillary Clintons of the world and so on. These are the most cynical people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment and the people who make decisions that have a profound impact on other people's lives. They take no firm stance or principled stance against empire. It's a case-by-case basis. Go ask the people in the former Yugoslavia if those bombs and mines were great. Remember two years ago when there were massive floods and they had to spend tens of millions of dollars just to clean up the munitions that were washed away and came up through the mud and through the the creeks and so on, through the farm fields and the agricultural fields. Ask the people of Libya. Is Libya in better shape today? And you have cynical commentators and liberals on the TV and in the Democrat Party who continue to argue that it is. By any stretch of the imagination, I I can't imagine how some... I cannot fathom how someone could honestly believe that when parliament, the government, I'm sorry, the government in Libya being forced to meet on a cruise liner off the shores of Tripoli because it is unsafe to meet in the mainland of the Libyan nation state. And look, and this is another part of the story that is lacking today as people talk about Syria, and I haven't heard much of a connection made with the war in Iraq. Well, in the beginning there was. In the beginning, I feel, you know, as you go sort of back in time and closer to the start of the war in Iraq and closer to when the news media and commentators and scholars and activists were still sort of talking about the war and, and, and connecting it with a lot of what was happening in the world at the time. Today, very few people And especially so if you're talking to someone who's, say, 25 or under, very, 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 very uh, few people will make the connection between the war in Iraq and what's happening in Syria. My friend the other night asked, well, how, how is there some kind of a connection? So beyond the ethnic, geopolitical, economic connections, the historical connections, let's just talk about geography, my friends. When wars start, they spread. Remember, Bush was drone striking. Some of of Bush's last foreign policy actions were were drone strikes in Syria. Now, when I was in Iraq the second time, I was in in western Iraq, about 5 to 10 miles east of the Syrian border and just south of the Euphrates River. There was no border, so let's just be very clear here. There is no wall. There's no fence. It's a wide open desert for hundreds and hundreds of miles at a time. Wide open. And virtually no distinction either. I mean, so when we were registering or with quotations above it, registering people to vote, another sort of cynical ploy by the U.S. military and U.S. government, nonetheless— when we were registering people to vote in Iraq, at least what was designated Iraq on our maps, 
and we know the history of where these borders come from, we had people tell us, we don't live in Iraq. We are Syrians. We are Assyrians. Okay. At the time, I had no, at the time as a sort of typically ignorant, young, working class white kid from the Rust Belt, I had no idea. I didn't pay attention in school, let alone, if I did pay attention in school, I can almost guarantee they wouldn't tell us much about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, let alone what the British and French empires did and, and, and colonial powers did in the Middle East. But over time, I started to learn and it all made sense. So imagine, as I told my friend, imagine a nation comes to Canada, destroys Canada's infrastructure, displaces at least one-third to one-half of its population, both internally and externally, and then that power stays in that country. It stays in Canada for, let's say, you know, 14 years. Imagine, if you could, the Canadian infrastructure destroyed the Canadian economy and its ties to the United States, which are, are in to be fair, of course, more complex and intricate than the ties economically between, say, Iraq and Syria, but nonetheless, relationship, economic agreements. And imagine one-third to one-half of Canadians being either internally displaced or externally displaced, millions of Canadians pouring over the northern border. Now, imagine that all takes place at a time when the U.S. is experiencing its worst drought in recorded history in the Midwest, where we grow the majority of our food. Although now we're getting food from all over the place, so. But let's just say the breadbasket in the United States. And cattle loss. You know, let's say, let's say Texas experienced 80% of loss of its cattle, like Syria did during that period in various portions of the country, mostly in the Northeast. Let's say 90% of crops were destroyed from North Dakota, or let's say from Nebraska through Indiana to Ohio. And we were experiencing our worst recession or depression since 1929 and Donald Trump had been in power, or, or his, him or his son had been in power for the last 40-plus years, 50-plus years. No, for, yeah, about 45-plus years. Imagine that. That's what I told my friend. That's what happened in Syria to some degree. It's a part of, only part of the story, but it is a significant part of the story that hasn't been talked about enough. So when George Bush was sending drones and Hellfire missiles into western Syria in 2008, the writing was on the wall for those who cared to pay attention and for those who were interested in history. Now, of course, the same was true in Vietnam. Much less to do with ideology and politics and much more to do simply with geography. If you understand the history of wars and if you understand how wars spread— how insurgencies spread, how attacks and assaults and counterattacks and counterassaults take place 
and how troop movements, uh, how the, the ways in which troops move and the troop movements that take place during the course of these wars, it's all geographically based. So when the war started in Vietnam, there were many people who had already worried, and it, I'm sorry, were worried and had already warned the public and the U.S. government. If you start this war in Vietnam, it will spread. You will eventually find yourself in Laos and Cambodia. And of course they did. Same is true in the Middle East, and the same is true with the war in Iraq. So, 14 years later, I sit here and I think about the absurdities of being in the military at that time. I think about the primarily, and this is the reason I think, and this is, this is also very important. It's something I've been thinking about lately. What is it that radicalized you? What is it that got you involved? That's my most, as my friend Kim Sipe says, that is the most interesting question you can ask a person you just met who's an activist. How did you get involved? What was the issue that made, made you uh, commit yourself to doing this work? Well, for me, it's quite obvious what the answer is, but I think the distinction is very important. So I'm meeting people today who are upset because Donald Trump is president. And that's fine. That's maybe a decent place to start. But it is very limited. Now, on a positive note, I think a lot of the people I'm running into actually have a more complex and better understanding of the interconnectedness of these issues than, say, I did when I first got involved. Um, but what I have seen missing is a, is a level of uh, understanding of power and an empathy and an internationalism. So one thing about getting involved around anti-war issues, issues surrounding U.S. foreign policy, is that it sort of forces you to take an internationalist perspective something that was utterly lacking during Obama's years. And even in the, the movements that did, or the events, if you want to call them movements, I think it's difficult to call Occupy a movement. I think it's difficult to call uh, Black Lives Matter a movement. I, I wouldn't call any of these um, particular things that have happened since I was, uh, have been involved, other than the anti-war movement, a movement. Um, there's simply not enough sustained action and organizations and institutions that grew out of those events to, I think, call it a quote unquote movement. That all being said, the things that did happen under Obama had virtually nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy. There was the Madison, Wisconsin protests, which I thought were very important following the uh, 2010 midterms. And, and I feel like progressives and people on the left and Democrats and even a lot of liberals felt like they were on the ropes and they didn't really know what to do. Good to see them in the streets, although that opportunity was more than squandered um, in a failed recall effort of Scott Walker. And again, a situation where people didn't learn much, uh, throwing their weight behind the Democratic Party only to see the Democratic Party shit the bed and lose the election against Scott Walker. I think they've lost twice now. And the the power and the, the uh, energy behind that those events in Madison dissipated in a matter of weeks with little to show as Scott Walker 
uh, maintains power and Donald Trump won the state. One of the most progressive or so-called progressive states in the in the uh, Midwest here, in the Great Lakes region. And the same is true with the Occupy movement. The Occupy movement was largely focused on economic issues, issues surrounding the uh, 1% and the 99%, which was a good slogan, of course, again, but something else that has failed to sort of be examined. I know Michael Albert from Z Communications has done some really good work on this, talking about the managerial class and breaking down the 99% as if those of us in the 99% we're all created equal, uh, which is not the case. Uh, depends if you're a woman. Are you a woman of color? Are you uh, a, a lesbian? Uh, are you gay? Are you a person of color who's gay? Are you a person who does, isn't a manager at your local? Maybe you're not someone who makes $250,000 a year that puts you in the top 1%, but you're telling me someone who makes $150,000 a year is living the same life that I am, making 30 something thousand dollars a year? I don't think so. Uh, not for a second. And the idea that those groups are all going to coalesce and share a world, coalesce around that slogan and share a similar worldview without intentionally creating uh, that worldview in a collective way, I think was very naive. And in hindsight, I think we can see uh, that without intentionally doing those things, those things aren't just going to organically happen. Now, there's a lot of other things with the Occupy movement that I plan on talking, especially, the, well, specifically the Occupy movement in Chicago that I plan on talking with our friend Sam Love about. Sam was at the time working with, out of Mess Hall and working with uh, Area Chicago and also working with the Occupy movement and and has a lot of really interesting not only thoughts and reflections, but he also has a ton of memorabilia. We talked the other day at the new space here in Michigan City, and it was truly amazing uh, the amount of materials that he had and, and, the, and the depth of and the breadth of experience and his reflections and so on. So anyway, we'll get him on to talk about that. But one of the things that was lacking in the Occupy movement, too, was a clear connection between empire and capitalism. That was something that was also lacking during the anti-war days under Bush. It was very rare that we were making the connection between empire abroad and austerity at home. Now, the American Friends and Service Committee, I can name a few other groups who did do a decent job, you know, even illustrating this for people, you know, so they would come out with flyers and pamphlets and huge posters that would show, okay, here's how much money we spent in one day or one hour or one month or one week in the war in Iraq and Afghan or the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And here's what we could have provided for people at home, X amount of hospitals, X amount of free tuition, uh, for college, uh, X amount of infrastructure programs and so on and so on. And I think those were really good. Those were good ways to get people to visualize the ransacking of the, uh, treasury. But, you know, I also had issues with that approach as well. I mean, one of the issues and one of the limitations of that approach, getting back to how I had originally started talking about this, is that it's not based in a sort of internationalism or in a certain morality. So for me, the war was wrong because it was wrong, because it's wrong to, to go and kill innocent people who've done nothing to you and who pose no threat to you. Um, 
that is flat out wrong. It doesn't matter if we're spending $1 doing it or if we're spending $80 trillion doing it. It remains wrong and it remains something that should be opposed more, mostly for and primarily for moral and ethical reasons, not because of the amount of money that it's taking away. Though a large portion of the critique of the war was framed in such a way, which is quite disappointing really. And not really disappoint, you know, to, to make to say that in a more constructive way, it's just something we should be uh, thinking about in the future and something we should learn from. You know, how do we better educate people and orientate them as they're coming into these organizations so they can oppose these things in a principled way? But that takes those things take time as a lot of activists and organizers are learning right now, the ones that I'm interacting with locally Organizing isn't the easiest thing in the world, and it requires a lot of work. And one of the things when you're creating an independent organization that is extremely important is to develop your values and your vision and your principles. But you can't do that as an institution in an effective way if individually people in your group or in your organization or whatever aren't doing that on an individual level. So for me, it wasn't so much that I was I came to Iraq Veterans Against the War as a Marine fresh out of the Corps and, and, and home from the war and ready to protest and speak out. I had already spent a significant amount of time, at least two years, doing nothing but reading and talking, reading books and talking to people about what kind of person I wanted to be and what I stood for and what were my values. That's an important process. If you're just approaching this in a self-interested way, well, the government fucked me over and I had to go to war, so I'm going to fight back against the government because I deserve benefits and I deserve a good education because I'm a veteran. Well, that's very, very limited. That is as equally limited as someone saying, well, I'm a black person from this community and I am strictly focused on black issues and any issue outside of that is just not really that important to me. Or a white person saying, hey, I'm just interested in my wages going up and I don't really care about institutional racism. You can't have it that way. It's not going to work that way. So this sort of, this is the limitation, and this also gets to organizing. This is some of the limitations of uh, Alinsky's model of politics, Saul Alinsky, the organizer from Chicago. This self-interested approach is very limited. At times it could be helpful, maybe within a single-issue campaign, if the single issue campaign is also, uh, say, coupled with an educational program where you can help orientate people and help move them during the campaign and afterward to, say, taking a more broad view of what they're doing. But just to focus on what in, in, on the issues that people are self-interested in is a big limitation. So there's a huge difference uh, depending – on what you got involved with to begin with or why you got involved. I'm sorry. So if you got involved because your wages were cut and you just wanted higher wages and you really don't give a shit about institutional racism or environmental devastation or the wars abroad or surveillance or loss of democracy or political corruption, all you really care about is just getting some higher wages and benefits so you and your family can live decently and go on vacation and whatever the hell else people do. I don't have any respect for those politics. I can understand them, and I understand how people can be led in a direction where they believe 
that by being self-interested is, is the sort of the limitation of how they can get engaged, but I don't respect that at all. And furthermore, and most importantly, we should be actively opposing that view. And we should be actively opposing right now this notion that Donald Trump, that all of these problems just happened in the last 18 months. The U.S. political, US political system has been utterly corrupt for a long time. Does it continue to become more corrupt? Is it more invasive? Yes, all of that is true. Citizens United, blah, blah, blah. Go, go to a post, go to a uh, pre-Citizens United world. That's fine. That's great. But don't expect the world to be much different. If you think the world was much different before Citizens United, I suggest reading some history books. It's a silly, silly, silly uh, perspective that we have to challenge. Because I'm hearing it from... I, I can see that one of the primary things we need to do is massive forms of education. And this is twofold. Number one how to understand society, how to understand power, how to understand institutions. That would be one angle. How to understand history. The other angle would be how to respond to that. So how do you actually organize? I'm going to tons and tons of events, and I have yet to run into someone who can explain to me the multiple components of a single-issue campaign. In a coherent way, say the, with the ability to do it for uh, an hour, to give an hour, to give a 45-minute class on what is a campaign, what, what, what functions does a campaign serve, and how do campaigns fit into your broader vision uh, for the future, and are those campaigns strategic, strategic to get what, what kind of tactics are you going to use, how do you use that campaign to build both externally and internally as an organization to help develop leaders, to give them new skills. We need massive education as a society and even more specifically as a movement. So there, again, ton of events, tons of speakers, people talking about things, all great, wonderful, and so on. But it needs to be taken to the next level. That level of sophistication uh, needs to increase. And so what I hope happens, I'm thinking, getting back to this being the, the 14th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, invasion and occupation, which continues today, the greatest war crime of the 21st century, and, and namely because of the hundreds of thousands, if not over a million Iraqis who've died as a result. And you know, the truth is I'm not angry anymore. I used to be extremely angry for a long time. I was angry at the government, angry at corporations, angry at this bullshit culture and society of people who really, for the most part, couldn't care less whether we're bombing someone or not. I, I was very angry for a long time. Angry at friends and family who failed to get off their lazy asses and get involved with anything. Uh, but at this point, I'm simply disappointed. Um, am I, am I excited about what's happening? Oh yeah, God, I mean, I'm excited. You know, there's great activists in the region, people like Sam and Olga Batista and Thomas Frank and others. There's people doing really, really, really great work. 
there's people around the country and around the world I know, uh, from Europe to Latin America to Australia and beyond, who are doing fantastic work. But generally, society, many family members, many friends, yeah, I'm totally disappointed in them. I, uh, over the years, have stopped talking to a lot of people that I, for years, kind of figured, you know, we can drag people along and, you know, I'll, I'll bounce back and forth between this world of hyperactivism and this world of, you know, just people I grew up with in the region. But those days have come to an end at this point. I have extremely limited time for uh, people who aren't involved at all. I just don't have any time for them. And I, at this point, have almost lost, I've lost almost all of the respect I could possibly have for people who haven't gotten off their asses to do something. People who are so wrapped up in their own self-interested, selfish lifestyle uh, that they can't even be bothered to get off their ass and maybe volunteer once a week to do something. And that's the most limited form of engagement. That's the most limited form. I can get a monkey to go to a soup kitchen and hand out soup. What I'm asking people to do is much more than that. And what we need to be demanding people do is much more than that. We need to demand that people use their minds, start being creative, start talking to their neighbors, start talking to their friends, get together with like-minded people and commit themselves to creating a better, more just and equitable and living society. That's what we need. Now, I've been talking to my friend Sergio about this over the last couple of weeks. I can see why Malcolm X, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, these other movements and people gravitated towards a spiritual slash religious message. Primarily because it instills a sense of discipline in people. So are you disciplined enough and can you manage your time enough? And can you put down the alcohol, put down the drugs, put down the bullshit and actually commit yourself to a cause. In many ways, it sounds like a religious cause. You're asking a lot of people. To be effective in a political movement, you're going to have to devote a lot of your time. This idea that you can just come, and for some people, that's fine. Some people, they only have an hour or two. That's fine. You find a way to incorporate them into your movement or into your campaign or whatever, your group. That's reasonable and it should be done. But for the people out there who truly want to create a different and better world, or for those out there who are simply interested in surviving what is coming, it would be, I think, who of you to understand that it is a large undertaking, that I've seen a lot of people get burnt out over the years because they haven't accomplished what they thought they were going to accomplish in a short amount of time. The view, your view, your world view, your vision, it should be years and decades down the road. I have a good idea of where I would like to be when I'm 40 years old, eight years from now. Well, should I keep saying eight years from now? I'm 32. I'll be 33 in May. In seven years, now things happen. Life happens. People die. You know, people go bankrupt. All kinds of shit happens. But people on an individual level and, and, and as a collective group in whatever group you're working with should have some kind of a vision for what you want 10 or 20 years from now because it's going to depend on what we do now. That success or potential success 10, 20, 30 years from now 
is going to depend on whether or not we lay the foundation today. So I hear people talking about all kinds of crazy things. They're going to stop deportations of immigrants from uh, the Gary Airport. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. None of that is going to happen in the short term. People are trying to decorate a house that doesn't have a foundation. So people are already talking about what kind of trim they want to put on the house, what color couches they want, and we have yet to lay the bricks and the cement for the foundation. And the foundation we do have is cracked, and in parts it's crumbled, in other parts it's kind of sturdy, but it is unstill. It is unstable. There is no question about that. There is no sustainable activism or organization or institution that I know of that exists uh, locally, especially. But there's this serious lack on a national level. I mean, the, some community groups on a small scale, some large-scale non-governmental organizations, but that's not what we're looking for. You know, Should we work with 350.org? Of course, but 350.org. You know, give me a break, folks. This is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that people have a lack of imagination. It's like, oh, what are we going to do? It's either the Democratic Party or let's join one of these existing organizations like 350.org or moveon.org uh, or uh, what is it? Democrat or, you know, let's work with the unions. You know, it's the un unions represent less than 10 percent of workers. What is that? It's like 11 maybe. My numbers might be off. I don't really give a shit. It's within one or two points. The union movement is dead in this country. It is dead. Don't expect a goddamn thing from the unions, for Christ's sake. Now, work with them when you can. I, I would argue reach out to their grassroots members, gra members at the grassroots level, some of the rank-and-file members who are more radical, who have better politics than their leadership, and most of the leadership is horrific throughout the unions. Reach out to those folks, Sure. And maybe you can help rebuild parts of the uh, organized labor. I think people would have a much easier time trying to reform organized labor in a more progressive or push them in a more left direction than they would trying to reform the Democratic Party. But it's the same with the NGOs. I mean, people lack imagination. People lack the skills and the knowledge necessary to develop independent institutions and what that would look like. And so what do people do? People run back to these institutions that have existed and they either sort of buy into the institutional logic of those organizations. And many times that's extremely problematic or what they'll do is, you know, they'll just sort of become disenchanted because they'll, they'll say, well, God, this, you know, 350.org, why weren't they more tough on Obama and why aren't they tough? Well, because, you know, it's a liberal organization. It's. You know, it's what it is. I don't have anything against Bill McKibben. But like, again, folks, you have we have to we, the goal should be to move beyond these folks. It's like with Bernie. I mean, any I told my friend the other day who wants to organize within the Democratic Party, I will I will in some ways I would even help candidates who run on a platform that Bernie Sanders ran on. But at this point, after that, la after the last primaries, anything less than Bernie Sanders is completely unacceptable and should be rejected immediately. That's just from the electoral angle. You know, let's have a little respect for ourselves. Let's stand up for something and stop being pushed around and slapped around.
you know, at the very least, you have to have a platform like Bernie Sanders in order for us to vote for you or to support you or let alone to knock on any doors or make phone calls for you. That's the bar that has been set. Anything lower than that, totally unacceptable and will be opposed and rejected. That's it. But that's not happening. You know, one thing that I respect about the right is that they know how to use power. The Democrats and the liberals are a spineless bunch. I mean, they stand for nothing. Totally gutless people. You think about, you think about, say, what happened to Cantor, Eric Cantor. What was he? The House Whip? Was he? Was the House? Yeah, he was the Majority Leader. So he was the Majority Leader, I think. And then Boehner, same thing. They threw those people out. The Republican base and the activists within the party said, hey, look, either you're going to be more right wing or you're gone. That's how they dealt with the two most powerful people. That's the two most powerful people in the House of Representatives. Now, to be clear, and this ties into this fallacy about the Tea Party and all of the above, this idea that you know the Democrats are going to take over, activists are going to take over the Democratic Party like the Tea Party people took over the Republican Party. But the the people who are in power in the United States, corporations, elites, and so on, they had a vested interest, as I've mentioned throughout the years, and this should be very apparent for anyone, had a vested interest in making sure the Republican Party shifted further and further to the right. That was the whole goal of you know, legislative initiatives like ALEC and what the Koch brothers do and all of the above, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, the, the right-wing media they are never satisfied, and they don't cut their people any fucking slack at all. When Cantor and Boehner didn't do what they wanted, they said, look, boys, you're gone. We will run your asses out of here just as quick as we got you elected. The Democrats, what are the Democrats saying, the liberals? Oh, you know, it, they have a really tough time in Congress, and oh, if it just wasn't for those evil Republicans, if the Democrats and liberals have more, ex- it's sort of a thing on the left to just make excuses for people. It's kind of like, so on the one hand, it's a response, because on the one hand, you have the really rough, uh, hyper-individualistic GOP and conservatives in American society who say, hey, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's None of this is the the fault of institutions or systemic problems or whatever. This is, this is your fault as an individual and blah, blah, blah. And so the, the left has responded by saying, well, it's always institute. It's always the institution. So let's just make excuses for everybody all the time, because at some point in history, they'd either been oppressed or their parents had been oppressed or whatever. So instead of using it to better understand the situation, what that also has, what it's also been used to do is to make excuses and apologize for what has really been some shitty activism and really shitty politics, unimpressive, uninteresting, uncreative, and so on. You know, so, I mean, pardon me if, I, if I'm not impressed when you come to me and say, what's your big idea? Oh, we're going to take over the local Democratic Party. Okay, well, good luck. I mean, I'm not going to help you and, you know. I mean, maybe uh, I wish you the best of luck. I mean, the, the more we can pull people and push people to the left and, and get more uh, uh, radical forms of legislation passed and, and get people engaged in more interesting conversations, the better. But there's nothing interesting about that. And again, 
the left and the you know liberals who operate within the party and progressives and all the rest have a little guts have a little respect for yourselves stand up for something you know stop pointing the finger like after this election this is the the greatest gift ever has been this bullshit with Russia to the Democratic Party because then the Democratic Party doesn't have to go back and admit to or reflect on the fact that and this is very good for today because the Democratic Party was also responsible for the war in Iraq, and so was the liberal press, uh, and so were a lot of rank-and-file Democrats who bought into the rhetoric as well. But the Democratic Party is responsible for Donald Trump getting elected, and so is the liberal press, not Russia. But it's easier to point the finger at Russia. Why? Because then you don't have to take any responsibility. Uh, not only as individuals, but as a collective group of so-called Democrats. The liberal press, much like with Iraq, all the criticism after the, after the tide turned and after the public opinion turned in 2004, 2005, and people became very critical of George Bush, the press never pointed the finger at it, it, at it said. They never looked in the mirror. Go back and read the articles. Go back and read the history. Go back and watch the news segments. You tell me how many times people in the press, including the, oh, the so prestigious New York Times and all the rest, tell me how many times they actually critiqued themselves and the role that they played as the fourth estate in allowing Bush and Cheney and Blair to unleash their madness on the people of Iraq. You tell me how much you're going to find. You're not going to find it. Because it didn't exist, just like now. Hillary Clinton and the DNC and the liberal press, through the primaries, essentially rigged the primaries or helped throw the primaries. I guess rigged is a little, you, you got to watch out. You want to fall into Alex Jones' world. Helped throw the primaries for their candidate, Hillary Clinton, defeating Bernie Sanders, someone who had a better shot at beating Trump. And instead of take responsibility for that, instead of talking about why that happened, same thing with the war in Iraq, instead of reflecting on that, they point the fingers. So anyway, we talked a little less about the war than I wanted to, but I also want to tell folks, you know, some essential books on the war in Iraq, Anthony Arnaud of Iraq, The Logic of Withdrawal, Christian Parenti, The Freedom, Robert Fisk, The Great War for Civilization, The New American Militarism by Andrew Basevich, Noam Chomsky's Hegemony or Survival, Patrick Coburn's Out of the Ashes, and Islamophobia and Politics of Empire by Deepa Kumar. We will talk to you next week. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you've been listening to the Progressive Radio Network. We don't know the contrast organic.